0: Did you know over 90% of podcast listeners take direct action on the advertising they hear? It's smart, right? And smart advertisers know Acast. We power thousands of podcasts all around the world, including the one you're listening to right now. If you want to reach immersed listeners in lots of different creative ways, then Acast's fully curated brand-safe marketplace is for you. Visit acast.com slash advertisers to find out more. Acast. For the stories.
1: Hello, I'm Georgie Courage-Cole, founder and editor of Sherlock's, and welcome to today's In Conversation with podcast. Just a quick reminder that we are recording today's podcast remotely due to lockdown restrictions. So if the sound is not tip-top, then do please bear with us. I am really pleased to be joined by the force that is Clover Stroud, as well as being a mother of five. Clover is a highly respected journalist and the author of two books. She's also written a column for Shill Arts, but never done a podcast. So Clover, what a thrill to be talking to you today.
2: Well, thank you for having me on.
1: I think we're both sitting on our beds trying to have as good acoustics as possible. I was saying yesterday, It would just be so nice to have a day on my own in my house, like Mm. a lockdown day on my own. Do you feel Mm. that ever? You've got five children. Just (laughs) talk me through that, that's going. Yeah, I
2: mean, I found it really, really interesting this period of time because there is no way in the world I would ever have taken the children out of school to homeschool. And I've always thought people who homeschool, I've sort of looked at them with a kind of combination of disbelief and and sort of respect as well for what they're doing. I wonder whether I'm getting a slightly unreal kind of sense of what lockdown is like, because my kids are, Jimmy and Dolly are 19 and 16. And then I've got another three children by my second marriage who are right. seven, six and three. So I've got a really massive age range of children. And so the older ones who were all living at home, because Jimmy was doing an art foundation year in Oxford, are looking after the younger ones a lot of the time and they're taking them for three to five hours a day when I can do other okay, okay. Stuff. So there so I
1: was feeling sorry for you with my children <laughs> at home. I, I now don't at all. you basically got two living nannies. I
2: have got two living <laughs> nannies who um, are being completely brilliant and also, you know, they cook supper last night and they do a bit of, you know, the domestic stuff. I think it's really good for kids. We're all having to everyone is genuinely having to buck in with, you know, mm. everything because it's so often it's just left for a woman to do, basically. And I've been really making an effort to get my young mm. sons who are three and Six to, you know, empty the dishwasher, do all of those domestic roles that they've got to learn about. So yeah, I found it really, really interesting. And like everyone, I've been feeling really distracted and really kind of weird and all over the place. But I'm interested by this kind of massive experiment in a way that's been imposed Mm -hmm. on us.
1: And what is it like having? I mean, you've obviously had two children from one marriage, three from another.
2: But mm. what's it like still dealing with nappies? A lot of kind of what my second book is about is motherhood and the kind of how awful it is <laughs> combined with how extraordinary it is. You know, the lightness and the dark together. And you know, I had two children in my twenties, and I had a very short marriage, which was over by the time I was about twenty-seven. I had a baby and a toddler that I was bringing up on my own because my mm. first husband, who I'm really good good friends with was really? an alcoholic he is an alcoholic he's recently stopped drinking which is incredible but he wasn't really capable of supporting them at all he saw them but like in terms of everything around their lives and financially and practically all doing all everything. yeah and actually it was incredibly motivating and I was doing loads of journalism at the time and my life as a journalist was going really well and I got through my 20s and I thought god I'm, you know, I've had two kids I've got a really good career I'm only 30 I felt very sort of powerful actually I really really enjoyed that part of my life and
1: can I just quickly ask you when you say you're a journalist I only know because so many people have said to me please do a podcast with Clover Stroud she's oh, so brilliant nice. <laughs> I feel like I have a job to fill in the gaps for them and um, when you were a journalist in your 20s what kind of work like, were you doing yeah
2: the first ever piece that I did I just got back from America I've been working in America for two years working as a cowgirl on a ranch, which is a lot of what my first book, The Wild Other, is about and I got back, I got pregnant I was like 24, got pregnant really quickly and I had this newborn baby and somebody said, oh you should write an article about your experience of riding in rodeos so I did that for Tatler and then Telegraph asked me to write a piece about I'd been to university in Oxford and so they wanted a piece about being a young mum who'd been to Oxford and and then it just kind of built up this kind of lifestyle Mm. journalism. I had like three columns in the telegraph I was writing for the Sunday Times style a lot very confessional pieces where I was kind of really developing my voice I was doing a lot for magazines like Red and Elle and Easy Living when it existed those kind of lifestyle stuff celebrity interviews and a lot of mm-hmm. travel as well I used to do a lot of travel which was good fun yeah I didn't really think I'd have more children but then I met Pete who I was actually at university with but I hadn't seen him and then and we got together and he didn't have children and I just knew that I wanted to have children with him and I was only yeah. thirty two or something. So and I'm also one of five. I think that's worth saying. So I'm the youngest of five children and, and I've grown up with a big family. You know, my sister Emma Bridgewater, there's like
1: Yes, <laughs> you're part of this amazing dynasty and your late sister. Yeah, Mel my sister was,
2: Nell Gifford, was, who who had the circus.
1: And I know she died quite recently, and I'm sorry and life's shit but what an amazing woman she was and god I'm a fan of Giffords and I've interviewed Emma on a success stories podcast and she's totally wonderful and she talked a lot about your mother and it's so funny because you know I've interviewed a lot of people but I always remember talking about your mother and her saying that she would ask people for lunch and they just sort of stay and stay and stay and Mm. that you lived this wonderful kind of quite bohemian childhood and Mm. I remember so vividly saying to her god she sounds like an amazing woman and yeah, it, was, it was, felt and... all felt quite emotional. The conversation, and, so, yeah,
2: she was really, really incredible, and really inspired us. I think, and I grew up with this you know really loving really close relationship with mom and we grew up in a sort of big rambling cold lovely house in Wiltshire with lots of ponies and mum was quite unconventional so that was a model in part of my mind as well even though at the end of my 20s I didn't think I'd have more kids so then we just started having more children and somebody said to me well no I get it that you wanted to have another child with Pete but like you could have just had one child why did you have <laughs> three children kind of in quick succession you know we had three kids Between 2012 and 2016, we had three children, and it's been full on. I mean, I can't say it's anything other than really, really intense having Mm -hmm. a teenager. And having a newborn baby at the same time, and that's a lot of what yeah. my world and sleepless nights is about. This, like Jimmy, my eldest, crashing into adolescence and smoking weed and getting expelled, and all the normal teenage stuff oh, happening god, at the same time. Oh god, dude! I mean, you just <laughs> fill me with the horror. But <laughs> so that was all happening at the same time that I had a newborn baby as well. And geez, yeah. It is really, really hard. I look at Lester, who's only three, He's, you know, in normal circumstances, he does preschool like three days a week. And mm. I think, oh, my God, the amount of time I've got at the school gate, you know, I can't, it's a, quite a head fuck sometimes thinking I was, I was a young mum at 24, and I'm now 45. And I've got a good another sort of 13 years of hard mothering to do basically so I'll be like, like mid-50s by the time Lester's an adolescent and it's hard. What's the hardest? Which bit's been the hardest? I definitely was aware of this in the first couple of years when Lester was a newborn baby and the children would all walk into the room all asking me to do something completely different like drive them somewhere to go and meet their friends so they could Go out like Jimmy, you know, be wanting to go off and do something probably that he shouldn't be doing. <laughs> and Lester would need to have his nappy changing, and Dolly would want help with her, who's 60 now, would want help with her like Spanish homework. And then Evangeline, who's seven, would want me to like be making a doll's dress with her or something. And Dash would be climbing up the larder Not a lot of hats trust a lot of hats to wear <laughs> and at the that same time. I think that feeling it can make you feel as though like your head is spinning around <laughs> I think it's in like the exorcist or something it's, I've never actually watched it but I know that there's a scene oh God, with like don't. somebody with a head spinning around sometimes there is I, I left feel the like cinema that.
1: after that moment I remember <laughs> our house mistress at school said don't go and see it we went to see it and we left it was so bloody scary
2: that's what I feel like quite often and you then know. you've got work
1: on top of and that work, I mean yeah. how does that fit in as a freelancer because because that's the reality, isn't it, for a lot of mums? You know, freelancers opened up so many opportunities for mothers to be flexible, etc. I mean, at the end of the day, dealing with all of that, you then got to sit down and write, when do you do it and how do you, like, motivate yourself to do it? So I imagine that's pretty hard.
2: I've never had, like, a proper nanny. I've always wanted, like, a proper, you know, like a super nanny or something who could come in. And... In a uniform. Yeah, that's never going to happen because I think that they would be <laughs> too horrified by the way we live, probably in the chaos of it, and, you know, they're very expensive and I can't yes. afford that. But um, I've sort of cobbled it together. We used to have au pairs. That was really brilliant. You know, somebody swapping a few hours of help We've had, like, various friends who've, like, come and lived with us when they've just left university or something. They're wanting, you know, a bit of a change of scene. So, you know, I I started writing when Jimmy was a baby. And I, at that point, I had, like, an hour a day or something. Then I would quickly sit down and, like, rattle out an article. And I can work fast. And I have become accustomed to kind of working in quite small periods of time. And I'm not a very well-organized mum with, like timetables and schedules and stuff like that. So every day is a bit different and it's quite mm. chaotic. Well, you make me feel it. better.
1: Man, people get, we've got schedules and everyone's got a time. No, 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 no. down. I wrote down one table. We'd broken it within about two hours. Coco was yeah. like, Mommy, we haven't stuck to the timetable. We haven't seen the timetable since. Just...
2: I mean, I really admire people that can do that. And I wish that I could. I just can't. And I think it's not a surprise that I've kind of chosen a career which is completely freelance and completely sort of dependent on me creating it. I've I've never worked in an office for somebody else. I've never really worked somebody else's timetable at all. Did you um, think
1: you were going to be a writer
2: when you were at Oxford, was the plan to write? I didn't really have a plan, to be honest with you. So mum had had, and the the first book, The Wild Other, is about mum had a massive riding accident when I was 16, which left her profoundly brain damaged. And she lived in this state where she couldn't walk or talk or she wasn't vegetative, but she didn't know what was going on at all. And she couldn't talk and she couldn't look after herself. She couldn't communicate in any way. And we had her living at home for two years when I was doing my A-levels. And then after two years, it became clear she needed like full-time nursing. So she went into a nursing home. So when I finished school, I spent two years living in a horse-drawn wagon, actually traveling around, going to raves and buying and selling black and white horses <laughs> before I went to Oxford. But I was like carrying quite a lot of trauma and a lot of sense of grief, for this huge loss mm. that we'd all experienced. So when I got to Oxford, I was kind of like, You know, I was a couple of years older than other people. I'd been through a major, and was continuing to go through, because mum was, you know... I was going to say, she's still alive at this point. She lived until 2013, so she lived for 22 years in this, like, very, very, very altered state in a nurse. So I was going into nursing homes for 22 years, basically, to see her, unclear about whether she recognised me, unclear about how she was, and... It was really hard And it was really protracted trauma and grief And when I look back at that period I think, God, I was kind of all over the place And I quite liked the work And I had good friends It was like the 90s And, and me and Nell always talked about How important raving was for us And the kind of being part of that rave generation And the freedom of it And the way it bust down loads of boundaries And was really good fun as well And was a an massive escape for us From what had happened to mum I think that was really formative for me And definitely when I was at uni that kind of sense of going and Release. finding a sound system, yeah, in some beautiful landscape and taking ecstasy and dancing all night was a really formative thing for us. And at university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I spoke to a friend the other day who said, all I can remember you saying was, I really, really, really want to have children. And I can't remember that. But you know, I, my desire to have children had been, I always loved babies when I was a little girl. I think mum's accident did make me kind of want to recreate a, you know, a sort of family, big, colourful, loving Yeah, I'm sure. Family life, yeah.
1: From the people I've spoken to that follow you, they kind of just love your brutal honesty and I think find so much comfort in it, whether it's talking Mm. about grief, Whether it's talking about postnatal depression and I agree like as a publisher I feel like we have a duty to also Mm. to have these conversations and to talk about sex and to talk about all the things that you know women aren't very good at talking about or we as individuals aren't very good at talking about and yeah you've talked a lot about postnatal depression you said Mm. you've suffered from it twice and you talk about it in both of your books. Can you talk a bit about it now for people Mm. listening because I think Mm. you know I think of new mothers now not being able to get out and go for a walk with that friend they met from NCT and go around the company
2: and, and, you know, just the
1: comfort those groups give each other.
2: I've been posting about it this week a lot, actually, because it's Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week, I suddenly realised. And so I've done a post on my Instagram every day about it this week because I think that, God, when I see somebody with a newborn baby now, I feel such kind of... Strong sense of wanting to kind of communicate a sort of care for them and a love for them, really, because that time when you've just had a baby and you are so so vulnerable, your skin is like paper thin, you're you're sort of turned inside out. And I know that I had really bad postnatal depression with my third Evangeline and my fourth Dash. I don't know if I had it with my first two. I don't remember. I was in my twenties. What I remember of having my kids in my 20s was it, you know, my life personally in my 20s was pretty all over the place anyway. A baby just kind of actually fitted into this fairly chaotic, low expectation, didn't really mind the lack of control. I was only just starting out my career. So, you know, I was more relaxed probably and possibly had lower expectations in a way. Do you know,
1: I think that's such a good point because there are a lot of women that have children later and they find the the change Really the amount hard. they have to adapt, yeah. really hard. And I've mm. seen it with people that, are, you know, they're sort of hitting forty and first child. Mm. They've had years and years and years of independence and control, mm. and suddenly, yeah.
2: And also, if you know, if you've worked for twenty years for your career, and then you and yeah. you're probably by the time you get into your late thirties, forties, hopefully a, a really good moment where you're kind of getting the work you want, doing the kind of stuff that you want, being paid well for it. To then have have to stop that and like take yeah. on basically a really domestic, solitary, often very boring, often very painful role of being with a newborn baby is fucking difficult. And I don't think that we kind of give women enough support during that time at all. And also, I think Instagram is really great. And I think it's getting better and better at communicating honesty because... One of the reasons I wrote My Wild and Sleepless Nights was that in 2016, when I had Lester, I went on to Instagram and I just saw sort of visions of perfection of motherhood. And he was my fifth baby. And people were saying, you know, you're an earth mother and you're an old hand. And I've never felt like an earth mother. And I never felt like I know what I'm doing with motherhood. I still am completely busking every day as I go through (laughs) it. (laughs) But I think being honest is really important. And when I had Evangeline, I was about 36 and... I was just hit and, you know, I just recently got married to Pete, who's my second husband, and I had this beautiful little baby girl and and a lot of people are saying to me, oh, you know, it's so lovely to see you remarried and you've got your happy ending and everything looks so wonderful, you must be so happy, Clover. And I just remember thinking, I should be so happy now. I've got everything that I want. And yet with post depression, I had that weird sense of kind of emptiness and distraction and separation from the rest of the world. That awful sense that the rest of the world is going on and you walk into a room and you're kind of not there. You're just watching everybody and disassociated. And also I had an element of that thing, which I think is really normal, but women don't like to talk about, of intrusive thoughts, of imagining doing really terribly violent things to my children like stabbing them or I remember being on a bridge in um somewhere and thinking I maybe I'm going to throw the baby off the bridge and and being in a friend's house in Notting Hill and it was like a big house with a big stairwell and like wanting to throw her over the edge of the stairwell I knew I wasn't going to but my mind was going to a place that could imagine it was there the images were there and I think a lot of women have that but it's a very shaming you know makes you feel very ashamed and confused and why is this kind of violence coming into my life and I think I had about three months of it and then I took part in a university study because I was living in Oxford then to do with postnatal depression and I got a course of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and that helped me pull myself out of this pit. And then when Dash was born a couple of years later, I had it again. I had sort of anxiety about where we should be living and how we should be living and how could I create the best home for the children and where was the best home, where do we belong? And I stopped being able to sleep and it was around like making their lives happy and the pressure that I felt to kind of create a childhood that was meaningful and secure and had the things in it that I'd had like you know I suddenly really wanted to be in the country and wanted them to have ponies and wanted a kind of freer life for them all and I think even with Leicester I was aware of it it was definitely like a kind of tide lapping at the shore I had to keep pushing it away. And did you feel
1: it got stronger and
2: stronger with each child? I think with Leicester I was so aware and I had some acupuncture I so didn't want it to happen again that I really worked at making sure that it did happen. And that was being very, very aware of what post-data depression is and what it feels like. And as soon as the signs were started to, you know, I, I had the acupuncture, for example, to try and stop that feeling of disassociation and separation before it even started. And, and I was kind of kinder, you know, I think the thing of being kind to yourself is so hard, but I really mm. tried to just be trying to try and silence the voice that, that mm. I have a voice that drives me, which can also say, oh, you're a bad mother, you're a failure. You're and how how right. do
1: you silence that voice? Because, you know, that is a really, I'm real God, if there's something that's I'm worried about, I, I obviously to my husband, I just mm. can't go there. I need to just park that because it's mm. just negative and mm you know Equally, there are things that come into my head, and I think, right, I'm not going to let myself entertain that. I'm just going to park mm. it and I'm going to move on. And actually, I don't want to talk about it because then it is more present than I feel you like give it, it should be. Sort of Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm. But what techniques work for you? I mean, you mentioned cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah. Um, you mentioned acupuncture. Were they good? Um, Did they help? What advice would you give to people if they want to try some alternative therapies? I had some
2: acupuncture while I was pregnant with Lester, and had a bit straight after he was born. So in the first sort of three months. That definitely helped me. I didn't have any more talking therapy at that point. I'm having talking therapy again now, actually. Since I was about 20, I've had therapy on and off for periods of time during my life. And, you know, knowing that you need to go and talk to somebody and acting on it and not thinking, oh, I'm feeling bad. No, it's okay. I'll be okay." Just come on. You know, just keep going. But finding somebody to talk to, talking to a friend, like having a girlfriend to chat to. And I remember talking to Nell about this, actually. And when her saying, you know, just go and have a chat with somebody and and it doesn't have to be like a profound, deep chat about about what's going on. It doesn't have to be with a therapist, but just having a chat with somebody about, you know, she we live in a village. So she said, you know, somebody in the village. And I think that that thing of human contact is so incredibly important and motherhood can be so isolating yeah. wherever you are, I think. And often you can feel quite lonely in the places where there are other people that like I sometimes feel quite you know quite lonely at the school gate for example But I've got mm. a couple of really good friends locally and particularly with this fifth when Lester was born, they were aware and they were helpful. And and I actually would say to them, I need to talk. I really need to talk to somebody right now. I'm not feeling great. I'm struggling right now. Yeah. And, like, reaching out to a friend, I think that's really, really helpful. And it's free. And it's, you know, it's yeah. not like therapy that can be expensive, yeah. you have to book into. Um... I do
1: think there is women we don't want to sort of be the Debbie Downer and always dump on everybody mm. and always be that mm. person that's, like, sucking their any no. positivity out of the situation but I do think you need a couple of wingmen or wingwomen oh, who you can just so be yourself with and it's so unconditional and that's what's definitely. amazing about female friendships isn't it but I also think that's why the ones the long ones that you've had for years and years are just so important and mm. I definitely think you need a couple of people oh, that I you think can just
2: definitely in that so sort of, true with you. like the time when your kids are little as well and I think another woman who has been Through it, always got young kids as well. Like someone who's got a toddler and a baby or got a newborn baby, they just know. I Mm. think it can be harder when your kids get older, you slightly don't really want to look back. You don't really want to remember all of that, of how hard it can be. If somebody hasn't got the children, they just might not be so completely interested by it or really get it. You know, the actual... Real challenge of being at home with a newborn baby and a toddler, for example, that is fucking hardcore. Mm. It really, really is.
1: I think you need someone who's going through the sleepless nights with you and they're mm. like, oh my God, weaning, I'm going to fucking yeah. shoot myself. If I have yeah. to have carrot thrown at me one more time or whatever it is. I'm sort of clamping my child's mouth open every night. You will eat this. Like that, you need someone who's going through the exact same moment because, frankly, once you've been through it, you're not really interested in talking about it. But I also had a couple of girlfriends who were a bit ahead of me mm. and who I just found had such wise words and kind mm. of put it all into perspective. And they'd kind of say things like, you know, don't worry, they'll eat it eventually. Or, you know, just remember that baby didn't cry through the night forever. Or... It I will don't know. pass, basically. Yeah, just being basically, re- it will pass. And mm. I looked at them, and I saw them with their children, who were brilliant. That gave me real comfort, like in moments where I wanted to scream, especially with a refluxy child that I had, you know. And I oh, used to. Oh, less you, t- you talk about bad feelings. I, <laughs> I used to want to throw him out the window. I remember at seven o'clock, last bottle, and I'd be like, he'd fall asleep, and then he'd scream, and it would just—I mm. literally would want to throw him out the window. Obviously, I'd lie on the road for him, as we all would. But yeah, you know, in that moment, it was quite stressful. <laughs> <laughs> but um I do just remember this them being quite wise. So I think having a couple of, you
2: know, women who are a bit older and can just put it
1: all in perspective mm. is quite mm. useful.
2: Being reminded that it will pass because when you're right in it, whether it is the reflux or the toddler who just won't walk along further than five yards in front of you know, that thing of trying to do something with a toddler and they won't do anything being reminded it will pass it will pass and that's sort of what I write about in the book as well is like very very much watching my Jimmy who's now 19 and just a complete and utter joy he's amazing being his mother is an amazing amazing experience an amazing but he has put me through it as well I have been was expelled (laughs) when when Lester was born and he's not like out there playing the violin and (laughs) writing sonnets or something you know he's quite naughty it's not been a walk in the park no not at all but being his mother and then watching him kind of moving of course he's absolutely not moving away from us right now because of lockdown but you know he will move out beyond my reach and out of our <laughs> out of our lives and that's kind of incredible and Moving and sad, and that sort of sense of loss of them later on. Is... Don't, don't,
1: don't. You also talk a lot in the book about riding, and you're obviously a huge horse lover. Mm. Can I just mention the picture I saw? I think it was on Instagram quite a long time ago now of the pony in your kitchen. Is that like a freaking thing? If you're listening and you don't follow Clover on Instagram, then go and follow her and look at the picture of, was it a Shetland pony tied up of to the Argus or something yeah. totally bonkers? But
2: it's is that a daily occurrence in your households? It's not daily, but we've got this really, really sweet little... Um, so my pony life is like quite scruffy. I've got these black and white ponies and they all live out in the fields. It's not high maintenance. I haven't got like show jumps and lorries and grooms or anything like that. Because also horses require a lot of work and stuff. So I've just got to have ponies that I can just put out in a field that I rent in the village and they're very low maintenance. And sometimes I get them in and go for a ride with the kids. But one of them's on do you ride every with day. someone else. And... No, I mean, God, I'd love to ride every day, but I don't do it every day. But it is a real source of of deep, deep comfort for me. It's something I did as a child. I've borrowed this beautiful, big black and white horse called Bella from a friend. And if I can get her in and go for a ride on her on my own without the kids, because I also ride with the kids, but then they scream, <laughs> and want to go a different way and they don't want to do this and they're freaking out because the bees landed on the saddle or something like that. But um, if I can go and ride on my own, I, I really love it. I do like it with the children as well. But we've got this little tiny Shetland called Holly, who's about the size... Of a large dog, and I bring her into the kitchen because it's just funny. I just, it really makes, I'll, I'll post a picture on Instagram today of her in the kitchen because we did it a couple of days oh, ago. Dude. She likes coming into the kitchen and standing in front <laughs> of Does she crap on the kitchen head. floor? No, she never has actually. She just likes being inside, and I love the sort of how absurd it is having a pony inside the house. It's, it just amuses Can me I... in the mundanity of domestic life.
1: Can I also just tell you that someone sent me a video that, God, made me cry at the weekend of this horse? Have you heard about this horse? that goes around these hostel wards, comforting people. Oh, I will send it to you. Wow. And it is so emotional. My father sent it to me and and loves horses, and he's got this owner and he literally he goes into the ward and he goes around and there's a man who's terminally ill mm. who can't communicate and this horse goes over and just kind of nuzzles next to this man wow. and the man the man totally breaks down and they take the horse into this ward and the horse decides where he's going to go and which room he's going to go into and where he's going to stop and it's just wow so powerful wow and actually we've done at sheer Lux, Quite a bit of work with a charity called Key for Life, and actually, I was so interested because I know that your mother um, was involved with reforming prisoners yes, and was quite yeah, interesting in that world. Yeah. And coincidentally, we have done some work with um, ex-offenders and young men that have not oh, really? had great opportunities and, you know, ended up on the wrong path. But this amazing charity called Key for Life, part of their process is they take the guys off. And they do all this training with horses, and they take the horses into the prison. And often when the men won't come out of their cells to meet people to talk to who are there to help, they bring the horses in, and these guys come out, and the connection is insane. Oh, it's incredible. And... Tell us about some of your adventures. I mean, you've had amazing adventures, by all accounts. <laughs> I mean, cowgirl, living in gypsy caravans.
2: yeah. I mean... Well, it's It's funny actually, like, so we moved to the country when I was seven from Oxford, we moved to Wiltshire and then we had ponies and me and Nell, so Nell was the sister who's closest to me in age and we did loads of riding as kids and it was, I think that being around ponies like makes children a real sense of independence and bravery and it's sort of, Mm you know, takes you to a kind of wild place, definitely. And then mum had her riding accident, but it was completely, for me, kind of going towards horses, because all of the adventures that I had were kind of around horses. So straight after I finished my A-levels, I went to work for a racehorse trainer, which was really amazing. Who he was that? that? It was Jim Old up at Barbary Castle. I don't think Ooh. he's training now, but I do. I mean, I live li- near Lambourne now and I ride out for trainers when I can locally as well because I think being around thoroughbreds is just like a whole different level of excitement and kind of yeah. adrenaline and beauty. Yeah. Such incredible, incredible animals. But um, yeah. after I finished my A levels and I'd done the stuff with the racehorses, I went to live in Ireland and I lived in Dublin for a bit and I worked in this restaurant that was owned by U2 and I was waitressing and I was a really terrible waitress I wasn't good at it so I went kind of like (laughs) travelling around Ireland and then this friend or this guy that I'd met in somebody's kitchen came over he was like a horse drawn traveller and he bought horses over and we travelled with a wagon and like big black and white gypsy cobs for a couple of years in Ireland and in England buying and selling horses and living in a horse drawn wagon and being very much in the countryside and then after university I went to America and I didn't know what I was going to do but I had this whole idea that I wanted to find out if like cowboys were real because my parents like listened to a lot of country music when we were kids people like Willie Nelson and Emmylou Harris and I just traveled around I mean it was like pre 9/11 it was a different kind of world really so I just flew into the country didn't have a I had like a 3 month visa and I which I totally outstayed I kind of taught my way onto a ranch in Texas and
1: where you discovered that cowboys are real
2: yeah (laughs) (laughs) I ended up working on a really incredible ranch learning how to rodeo and work with cattle and rope cattle and and it was a kind of total fantasy of what you imagine cowboy life to look out and then later on when I was in my late 20s actually I'd had Jimmy and Dolly and I went on the road with Nell's circus after I got divorced for one summer and I had a column in the telegraph and I met this guy who was like a trick rider, He was a Russian trick rider. So after that, I would go over to Russia, to southern Russia, beside Chechnya, and go and stay with him and do a lot of riding in the mountains there. But the key to all of these horses are the men, the horsemen, basically. They kind of were a passport to adventure, definitely, and into these sort of wild worlds. Yeah, the men there were exciting, tough, physical guys who, you know, it was, I can't say it was anything other than a complete massive, you know, thrilled to be out on the plains with these cowboys or out in Russia in the mountains with this guy firing Kalashnikovs in the mountains. And, you know, it was exciting and it was sexy, but it was also, I think, like the horses were, and this kind of tough world was a kind of profound connection to my adolescence and my life with my parents I suppose as well and what happened the worlds that I was going into this kind of traveler worlds and cowboy world and you know then kind of Russian gangsters basically were all quite you know increasingly high octane I suppose and I definitely think mm. that what happened to my mum and the kind of trauma and drama of that has sort of imprinted itself in me in some way or another and I kind of have sort of sought out quite extreme experiences I suppose because of that and in a way I think motherhood you know having a lot of children is another version of that in a sense and some people sometimes say to me well where do you find that now you're you know living with five kids and
1: yeah all I was just... gonna say what fills that void you can't have any more babies well you could can't, yeah sounds no, I like you won't
2: no I definitely definitely won't and I can't just travel off to the other side of the world and nobody else can also travel off to the other side of the world right now <laughs> but I definitely definitely find that my writing and kind of like creative daring I suppose for me is something that feels really important and that is one of the reasons why I enjoy writing in a really really honest and really revealing way because I feel like I can say the things in my writing about motherhood or about marriage about sex desire about working about friendships which a lot of people feel but you know sort of bound by convention or society or or family pressure whatever people don't want to talk about and I Mm. think that Kind of that real stark honesty, I find quite exciting to explore it and to to communicate it and to connect with women in that way. And And
1: I imagine it's therapeutic and, you know, and also I'm into that because... If you weren't doing it, there'd be so many people who weren't getting that. And people need to get that from somewhere. And we need to be honest and we need to have these conversations. So I think it's brilliant. I imagine you're asked at loads of dinner parties. You sound like you'd be a brilliant guest. There are lots more stories about your life and travels and children and mental health in My Wild and Sleepless Nights, which came out
2: early this year it came out in february luckily it came out just before the lockdown so it, it went on to the, it was a sunday times bestseller which was brilliant actually i but, mean
1: um, the reviews are incredible i was gonna say has its success been impacted i mean what i've read about it is just, just so full of praise has it gone really well and it's I think gone really Carina's well has got in the way at all
2: well definitely Corona's got in the way I mean I had all my events you know obviously all the literary events and bookshop events and speakers events that I was doing around it were all cancelled which was really sad but you know I feel real sympathy for people who've got books launching during I luckily it had launched before oh, before lockdown happened but I also mm. in reaction to that I started doing a series of Instagram lives, like interviewing different authors twice a week which has been quite good fun as well and um, it definitely definitely has been impacted by that but I think everybody is feeling it so i'm not complaining about it but it's one of the things i do really love about instagram that's the social media platform that i use the most is the fact that it does enable you to connect with people and the amount of messages that i've had from women who said i've just finished your book i couldn't stop reading it you have totally articulated what's been going on in my head since i had my child a year ago whatever and you know i feel seen and i feel liberated by what you've written and that's really 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 nice
1: Before we finish, can I quiz you on a few Mm. things, um, Mm. like what it is you're missing the most in lockdown?
2: I'm really missing my friends. Do you know what I realise? I'm really, really missing. I mean, I spend quite a lot of time on my own anyway. I live in the middle of the country. You know, I've got lots of kids. I'm a writer. It's not as though I go into an office which is really sociable every day or something. But I'm really, really missing seeing my close friends. I'm really Mm. missing, I know this sounds really weird, but like it makes you realise, I'm really missing touching my friends, hugging them. Do you know what I mean? Being tactile with my friends. I do. I really do, actually. I'm really missing, um, Pete has got his office on the Edgware Road. and About once a month or something, I go and meet up with him and have lunch. I'm really missing going and having really nice Lebanese food (laughs) on the Edgware Road. Every
1: now and again. (laughs) Okay, so friends, Lebanese food. Good. What is on your bucket list for on the other side? Other than seeing your friends and family that you haven't seen.
2: We're supposed to be spending Christmas in Cadiz with my dad and stepmother and stepbrother, which I've been really, really looking forward to. I really hope that that happens. Obviously, like being in a beautiful European city, you know, like imagine being in Seville or something now. Just imagine how lovely that would be. But um, in a more profound, bigger way, you know, I'm really interested by the idea of how do we go back to normal and do we want to go back to normal and what was so great about the old normal that we want to go back to. So I am really interested by and troubled by and thinking a lot about how am I going to change my life after this? And what will that feel like?
1: It does make you reprioritise a bit, doesn't it? Mm. Which I think
2: lots of us are feeling. What
1: books are you reading? TV are you watching? Podcasts are you listening to? Any of the above, all of the above?
2: I really love, Annie Max podcast. I think she's a really brilliant interviewer. I love her take on things. She's fantastic. I've just read Fleischman is in trouble, which is just so so brilliant. I couldn't stop reading it. You know, and it's about marriage and relationships and being a woman and being a man and how we can live together or not and what children do to a relationship and how to have a career and it's an incredible book and so multi-layered and it's a really, really big, thick, chunky novel that you can really, really get lost in. So that was really lovely. In terms of what Yeah, I'm that's watching, a good recommendation. I'm yeah, sure no, that. I would really, really... It's yeah. been out for a while, but I would yeah. highly, highly recommend that. Watching, watching? I'm just waiting for Succession. I'm like, I just <laughs> love Succession so much and I'm just waiting for Series 3, I think it will be, won't it? And um, I watched it last year. I just thought the dialogue was brilliant, the characters were brilliant. It was when Nell was still alive and we would talk about it a lot because she completely and utterly loved it as well. And I haven't really found anything since I finished watching that. We watched a lot of Ozark, but I got a bit kind of ground down by it. It got a bit slightly depressing, so I've stopped watching that. I haven't really been watching that much. Have you got any good recommendations for good box sets? Well, have to... you watched Normal People? No. I think it's right up your street, actually. Yeah, everybody's talking about it, obviously it's bloody right brilliant. Mm. It's
1: bloody brilliant. I mean, I've just finished it and I am genuinely in mourning. I, I think, you know, it's hard to see what's going to top that but apparently hollywood is excellent i did a big instagram poll send me all your recs and hollywood was that one and working
2: mums which right. is something
1: netflix american anyway those are my two on my list so okay um but okay. normal people you gotta do it you gotta do it okay
2: what about podcasts chris anderson does like a ted interview where he interviews people who've done ted talks and then you know he kind of delves further into their subject and that is always something quite complicated about some ai or genetic engineering or something and they're difficult you know they're kind of challenging and they're really interesting and they um have kind of opened me up to things that i you know i might not necessarily read a book about and he's a really great interviewer i love emma gannon as well control Alt delete i think she's a really she does a great podcast yeah Yeah. she really really does i like her Um, what are your podcasts i always want podcast recommendations i would
1: say the immaculate deception is really good and i love Gemma shepherd and emma forbes's podcast i think they have Good guess. Good chat. Right. Anyway, on that note, I think you need to go off and watch normal people while you've got a bit of peace and quiet, <laughs> <Yeah>. Clover. <laughs> Clover, I have loved chatting to you. Thank it's you been so great. Much.
2: Thank you. Thank you very, um, very much.
1: Thank you so much for listening. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Stay well, look after yourselves, and we will be back soon. Bye bye.
0: Did you know over 90% of podcast listeners take direct action on the advertising they hear? It's smart, right? And smart advertisers know Acast. We power thousands of podcasts all around the world, including the one you're listening to right now. If you want to reach immersed listeners in lots of different creative ways, then Acast's fully curated, brand-safe marketplace is for you. Visit acast.com slash advertisers to find out more. Acast. For the stories.